1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the show, Justin Webb, journalist and now author whose latest big story is his own, a memoir, The Gift of a Radio. Our host today is Poppy Damon, someone who also knows how to tell a good story. She's senior producer for Blanchard House and has brought podcasts such as Stories of Our Times and AmeriCast to life. Her latest must-hear is Pseudocide for Spotify. And do check that out if crime with a darkly surreal twist is your kind of thing. Here's Poppy with more. Justin Webb is a familiar voice to many radio listeners. He's been co-presenting the BBC's flagship morning current affairs show, The Today programme on BBC Radio 4, for over a decade. As a journalist, he's covered the first Gulf War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, interviewed presidents and prime ministers, and been a regular face on TV as the BBC's former North America editor, too. But today, we're going back a little further in Justin's life. His new memoir, The Gift of a Radio, My Childhood and Other Trainwrecks, is an unflinching but darkly humorous account of an often turbulent upbringing. The book, set amid the bleak backdrop of 70s Britain, touches on prickly subjects such as his mother and stepfather's undiagnosed psychological conditions, home life characterised by silence and a harsh education at his Quaker boarding school. But it's also a portrait of a close and loving relationship with his mother. It's a book peppered with Justin's humour and wit and meditations on how things have changed, particularly our views on mental health and class. He joins me now to talk about it. Welcome to Intelligence Square, Justin. Oh, thank you so much for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed reading your book. I guess to start things off, I'd love to just ask about your mum and whether you could tell us a little bit about her because she's so crucial to the experiences you share. Who was
0: your mum? Gloria Webb was her name, a complex, complex person, a person who changed midlife from being hugely involved in the fripperies of life, uh, if not always to her great advantage, And part of that, I think, led to her having me. So too much booze, too much fast living, but a constant sense also, rather sad sense of being used and as not not knowing who she was. And then once she'd had me, this kind of extraordinary change that we are all capable of, where she became intensely serious, albeit in a slightly weird kind of a way. She became a kind of Quaker Maoist, is how I describe it in the the book. She, She suddenly became enormously interested in the world, in religion, in me, and what would happen to me with that change, her life took on a kind of inner seriousness that she kept for the for the rest of her life. And and why is she interesting? I I, I just thought when I look back at my life and my mother and my very very peculiar upbringing, I, I thought one of the interesting things is how people are capable of changing during the course of their lives and how complex they are because you mentioned snobbery she was a staggering snob i mean she really did talk about the lower orders without irony that that was a phrase she used i can remember it she loathed our neighbours because she thought they were lower middle class so the people she hated most were the ones who were striving she quite liked working class people provided they knew their place she hated mrs thatcher because she was trying too hard to speak the queen's english snobbery was a huge part of her life and who she was and I write in the book about how she kind of passed that down to me with with mother's milk as it were but also at the same time she was a thoughtful person she spoke spanish in her later days she was in amnesty international cnd she was a humanitarian and it's those complexities that the fact that we are all of us mixes of things that I think is what drove me to write the book and particularly it's a bit of a cliche but particularly in the era of social media where we're also quick to judge people on what they said yesterday rather than on the fullness of, of who they are so you know if I'd been a novelist I'd have written this as a novel but I'm, I'm, I don't have either the imagination or the literary ability to, to do that so here's my effort. It is a complicated picture, and I love that it's not a just simplistic view.
1: And and one of the big themes you mentioned there was snobbery and class. You write that something that preoccupied your mum, you said it was not an elephant in the room, it was the whole room. And I just wonder what you discovered about class when you reflected on it or what's changed
0: since then and now. Well, I mean, two things have changed. What part of the book is about the 1970s and, and what the 1970s were like um and we forget really how enormously enormously um different they were uh, what was acceptable in terms of how we saw other people not just in class actually but in race and in all sorts of areas in 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 how we treated women um so there were a whole load of things that um that were possible then that now thankfully are not but what really interests me is how in spite of that, there are things that just that, that are in your upbringing that are so deep seated that you can't get rid of them. So, my mother wouldn't say toilet, she, she would only say lavatory or loo. And I can't either. In a BBC script, I, I cross it out. I actually can't bring myself to say the word. I managed there, but it was quite a struggle. And there are sort of, really, sort of deep seated things like, like that. My mother's obsessed with how you pronounce words. Uh, controversy was one. so if people said controversy, she thought they were useless and so I've always said controversy which is a slightly more difficult way to pronounce that word. Why does it why, why does it matter? Well of course it doesn't matter at all and yet actually to me I know, Although intellectually, I know it doesn't matter. I know kind of viscerally, it actually rather does. And it's that amazing way in which those things, those sort of snobbery things that you learn very young in life actually do stay with you.
1: There was lots of them that I didn't know, scent
0: and perfume. There were ones that were just totally new to me, hand-holding. Handholding in public, eating in public, actually doing pretty much anything in public was was frowned on. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole list of, of things that were not acceptable. Anything, as you say, scent and perfume. So anything that is French and has been translated into English or, or anglicised, um, like perfume, is completely unacceptable. And you're just, and if you say those things, then you're you're done for. And I think the really weird thing about it, as well as the longevity of it, that in as much as it still exists in in me is the kind of also the way in which actually when you feel that you're superior even if you live in desperate circumstances and my home life i mean we weren't dirt poor but we didn't have much money but we lived in weird 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 um silence um uh, we had no friends no one coming to the house it was a really odd upbringing and, a, and in many ways a deeply unhappy upbringing but we, we genuinely thought, when I say we, mum and me, uh, we thought we were superior to everyone, pretty much. And that she does really give you, kind of bolsters you in, in a way as a child. So from the age of eight, I think I genuinely thought I was superior to most people I came across. And, and right, all the way through, really, to going to university, actually, and realizing with a bit of a shock that I wasn't. You know, and, and that, in a way, it's a survival mechanism, and it, and it actually does work. And we're
1: going to get into some of the more um, weird and wonderful parts of of your growing up as well. But I do also want to bring in another character who's really important to to this story, and that's your stepfather, Charles. You detail a lot of his mental health struggles. And one of the noticeable differences is sort of how it was spoken about then and now. And you write, mental health was regarded with a mixture of fear and hilarity. Um, And you, you recount a number of sort of Incidents ranging from playing bark very loudly to, um, you know, a later a suicide attempt. I just wonder, again, when you were looking back on then and now, what what you took away from that about how we think about mental health?
0: Well, on the one hand, um, a huge progress. I mean, there's absolutely no question at all that we treat the whole idea of of. Um, mental health and mental illness. And of course, they're two different things in a sense. So, mental health, we think of the broad, you know, unhappiness and depression, ranging from clinical depression through to just, I feel I can't cope or I feel panicky or whatever, all those kind of things that are a perfectly normal part of many lives. We're now able to say oh, that none of that could be talked about. I mean, really couldn't. It was an admission of, um, if not sin, then weakness. And it's a good thing that, that that's all gone. Mental health, when it comes to actual mental illness, I wonder actually if we've made so much progress. I mean, it's probably better treated. Uh, if you can get to see the right treatment, but we know that that's not easy. But my father was, my stepfather was um, quite significantly mentally ill. This wasn't a sort of mental health crisis, he was mentally ill. He had what was diagnosed as schizophrenia, though I don't think they really knew quite what that meant, even the people who did the diagnosing. And they just gave him Valium um, and said, you know, all the best. Uh, Let's hope it all goes fine. Uh, And it didn't really go fine for him or for us or for for anyone. Uh, and and ag- again, I suppose now, you would have better treatment and more treatment. But I think the big thing, actually, more than the treatments is is just the attitude of society, you'd be able to talk about it. And I mentioned in the book, Alistair Campbell, and, and Alistair, I think, has been able to describe in his book, uh, in his books, plural, actually, what it feels like when you feel your mental health going downhill. And it really interests me that nobody, I don't think, ever talked to my stepfather about what it felt like. It was a kind of shameful thing that we just covered up. And, you know, Charles is up again in the middle of the night playing Bach at maximum volume or going out to the garage to change the doors because he thinks someone's coming in to fiddle with the car. And all those things you you just sort of cope with behind net curtains and never talk about, never talk about to other people. But really crucially, I think, also never talk about to him, which is, you know, desperate.
1: I think that's what really comes through is that those those details you you kind of point out that in films they often like we've got the Joker, uh, it's it's not a very accurate representation of mental yeah. illness, and so I, I I think those details really bring it to life that paranoia that sense of unease you had to live with.
0: Yes, absolutely, and and we we tend to kind of over glamorize the violence that is sometimes associated with mental illness. You know, people being dangerous. Most people who are mentally ill, I mean, I'm talking about serious mental illness, most people who are mentally ill are not, not dangerous. I don't think my stepfather was was dangerous. But they, they can be deeply, deeply deranged and in need of help without being dangerous. And we tend to think either people are kind of semi-okay or they're, they're you know, attacking people with axes. It's not true.
1: I also think it's important to say that in your description, there's a lot of hope as well, because I think there's a sense that you were active in not wanting to pass that trauma down from generation to generation in that sort of Philip Larkin way. Do I have that right? Is that something you, you do believe in the hope of breaking a cycle? You oh, know?
0: hugely, hugely. Yeah, yeah. And the book, I mean, you said very kindly at the beginning, it had humour in it. And the book is meant to be as well, a, a bit about the kind of hilarity of of all of this, and particularly hilarity in, this, in the 70s. And I think with humour, which was, you know, my mother was, again, another addition to her complexity. She was enormously humorous. Um, She could really could see the funny side of everything, including herself. And that is a rescuing mechanism, it seems to me. I I think we sometimes don't emphasize enough in our lives, actually, the need to be able to laugh and the need to have a sense of humor. I think people with a sense of humor rescue both themselves and people around them and I've always been, it was sort of the most glorious, wonderful thing with my own children, you know, who live in such different circumstances than, than I did. But apart from anything else, they're just able to kind of laugh among themselves. And I, and I, I took slightly an only child thing. I, I was um, talking about all of this weirdly with someone who had sort of semi-similar circumstances the other day. And they were saying that the biggest shock to them about growing up was having children and not just having the children which is a shock to everyone when you have them but but also the fact that the children would laugh with each other and have a life with each other that wasn't necessarily involving you and that sort of that you, you never have that if you're an only child and if you're an only child in weird circumstances it kind of accentuates all the oddness that, that there is around you you know and i'm not the only person to have, to have noticed that or f- or to for it to have happened to but i think it is an interesting thing about the way that children grow up and the and the extra needs as it were possibly that you have as an o- only child but possibly also the extra strength you get from from being the center of so much attention and
1: i suppose that only child loneliness is something else I wanted to talk to you about because the the radio features as a kind of crucial moment where you get your your first radio and it helps you overcome loneliness. And I just wondered if you could tell me a bit more about that and the medium's ability to overcome loneliness,
0: I suppose. In the modern world, well, with things like podcasts, there is a lot of stuff around that we can listen to and engaging and, and all the rest of it. What there wasn't then was obviously all of that and there wasn't the internet, etc., etc. et cetera. But there was this, this one outlet, actually, and, and TV was recorded, apart from the news every now and again Um, the one outlet where there was a live person talking to you and it didn't matter whether it's a disc jockey, as they used to call them, on on Radio One or, or you know something on on Radio Four. I used to listen to Radio Four long before I could really understand what was what was going on. Or the World Tonight. I remember as well in bed at school, and that kind of sense of someone talking to you who was actually there, and that that amazing intimacy that there is in radio talking out, out to you, to you particularly. And that um, I mean, in, to an extent, actually, it still exists. I think, and I think it's a kind of it's radio's single advantage. Advantage over this medium because of its its liveness and the fact that anything could happen. And podcasts slightly get over that because, of course, you know anything can happen and you're likely to leave it in. But what you don't have on this podcast or any anything that's recorded is that jeopardy of live radio and the and the warmth of the conversation that is that is actually happening at that moment and I think that's that's the big thing that radio still has and and radio in, in when there was nothing else in the <laughs> 70s when I first switched on my radio that was it and it was it was an incredible incredible lifeline.
1: Your relationship to the radio is connected to its liveness. In the book, you do make the confession that you've never listened to a podcast. How can that be (laughs) true in this modern age? Why is that?
0: Uh, I think it's because I like silence. And this is possibly the Quaker upbringing as well, as well as my own odd, odd upbringing in our little house where there was complete silence most of the time. I'm quite comfortable with silence and I don't like people chattering on. I like the idea of live radio where you're actually or almost talking to someone. I'm less comfortable actually with the idea of something in the background or something that I need to listen to while doing something else. And I'm really conscious that people listening now are listening to this while doing something else. This is not a criticism of you. I'm just <laughs> genuinely delighted you're you're listening. That I I find it really difficult actually. I, I um I find it. I, I walk my dog sometimes in the park, and everyone's wandering around with with headphones. Almost all of them listening to an Intelligence Squared podcasts. I can't actually i I just can't do it i'd prefer to talk to the dog
1: quite early on you felt a compulsion to engage with that live element when you were 11 you wrote into woman's hour
0: yes I, god knows why it's just so strange i i wrote to woman's hour because i heard them talking about rape and I, I didn't know what rape was but it appeared to be something that was bad and involved men and women and and i knew that i was male and we seemed to be getting the blame so i i wrote to Sort of single line to women's art, and I I put my name and the address, but asked for it to be withheld. I don't know where I how I could have known to do those things, and I and I wrote, please make it plain that not all men uh, engage in these things. And they read it out. Sue McGregor actually must be one of the first things she ever did on on women's art. Re- read it out, and I can remember this kind of extraordinary sense of power when I heard my words that I'd written being read out. And it was definitely, I mean, there's no question at all that that kind of set me on, it's weird how these things happen, isn't it? This single thing just set me on a path to thinking, actually, that's what I want. I wanted to, to say things that people hear. I didn't really know what I wanted to say, but I had this real sort of sense, this almost narcissistic sense of performance coming from a boy who lived in, in complete silence In a weird household where face-to-face we saw almost no one, but I I knew even then that I I wanted to to do it.
1: And how interesting that in a house where lots of these things were forbidden, where you didn't discuss them, now in your career you've discussed every uncomfortable matter and that very discussion on Not All Men is something you will have covered many times on the Today programme.
0: That is very true, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? We all bring to everything we do the kind of weird complexities of who we are. And I think I've always felt that the people, the kind of broadcasters that I've worked with who've been particularly good are the ones who have proper life experiences. And the obvious one being John Humphreys. And, you know, for all John's faults and for all that he was thought of as as an argumentative, oh, what's it, and all the rest of it. But actually, you know, the thing sitting next to John, which I did for the best part of a decade, is you realise that he's lived a life you know, he's he, all sorts of disasters have befallen John, and all sorts of triumphs, and he's seen things happen, and in his own life, seen things happen, and and th- that actually adds to a kind of richness of of being as a person, which I think really, really um, improves you as a broadcaster because you can have conversations that are understanding, comprehend the the richness of experience and, and and the complexity of people and if you don't have that if you're callow if you seriously think that X has said Y so is obviously this sort of person or that sort of person and you're not willing to look at all beneath the, the surface then I think you're you're not doing your job so ably as a as a broadcaster so yeah I think I mean I'm not sure about in my case but I do think in in the case of people I know who have lived lives that have seen tragedy As well as triumph, I think it's a good thing. And I suppose it'd be
1: pertinent to bring in here one thing that is explored is your biological father, Peter Woods, obviously a BBC broadcaster. You grew up sort of seeing him on the television, but not having a direct relationship, which is quite unusual. Again, tell us about that and how that sort of informed your. Your life and pathway.
0: One of the oddnesses about having Peter Woods as a father was the way it was introduced. We were just watching the TV. It was a thing about the balance of payments and there was a sort of lugubrious man in the corner of the room. And my mother just suddenly said, that's your father. And I said, oh, and um, I was probably about eight. And and that was the end of the conversation. It was immediately incredibly obvious that she didn't want to go on. She didn't want to talk any more about it. And she didn't. And that was, you know, the the complete end of the of the conversation. And frankly, it was the end of the conversation, really, for the rest of my my life. Um, he he came on once, then actually a very famous episode of Morecambe and Wise. People of a certain age will remember it. They they did all the newsreaders. The first time the newsreaders' legs had been seen in in public, and they all came on. And my mother's reaction was to say. He had shoes the size of the Queen Mary, such a strange <laughs> phrase I, I mean it was kind of weirdly intimate in a way um what we're probably now in the modern world call inappropriate or problematic or something, but it was just an odd phrase and then and there was someone cleared their throat, I suppose my stepfather and and then we turned the t v off and and put it away and that was um that was it. I knew then and' no reason to disbelieve her, so I sort of knew I, I felt that that was. The truth but we had so much else my mother uh, and i had this r- very close relationship and then i went off to boarding school and all the rest of it that i actually didn't it's weird how f- how deeply you can repress things and I, I do, it really wasn't actually much of a part of my life after that.
1: Recently in the, the Daily Mail, they, they took an extract from the book, and the headline was, I weep for any child who, like me, is sent to boarding school to Lebanon. It was a Quaker boarding school. Your mum had read about it in the paper. What was that experience like, and why is it that you feel so strongly that it's this traumatic thing for children?
0: Two things, actually. Number one, uh, I think, broadly speaking, that, that um, this is a pretty obvious point, isn't it, really, that, that children or to grow up at home it just seems to me that it's in almost all circumstances better for children not to go to boarding school young i mean later on in their lives possibly for all sorts of reasons it might, it might be a good thing if people have the money and all the rest of it but actually at the age of 11 or eight as some i've got friends who went at eight it just seems to me that that is a, a peculiar way to grow up but then added to that was boarding school in the 1970s was um, you know, it was it was a tough experience. And my school wasn't abusive in the sense that some very big public schools are now coming to terms with all sorts of awful things that happen and were done by masters to children, et cetera, et cetera, or to boys. But what what my school was and the reason I write about it, and again, going to this kind of complexity of experience, my school was a Quaker school. Quakers are peace-loving, believers in equality. You know, they're a wonderful religious sect, actually. I'm not a Quaker myself, but I have enormous respect for them and liking for them as people. And my mother was was a very keen Quaker by the time I went to the the school. And yet they ran this school that was really a hellhole. I mean, absolutely rife with bullying, physical violence from the masters, physical violence from the pupils to the pupils, particularly the boys. And I don't think we stress this enough sometimes. We assume that all the violence all the bad things came from, from on high, as it were. There was an incredible cruelty, almost encouraged cruelty, from children to other children in the 1970s. And it was desperately uncomfortable, too. I talk about the state of the loos. I can't say toilets, as, as you'll understand. But you know, they were just absolutely disgusting, unheated, unsanitary. Why was any of that acceptable? Well, the answer is because it was the 70s. And we hadn't really invented um, children's rights, or care particularly the
1: food also was quite memorable
0: <laughs> food was just disgusting just a kind of dollops of stuff that you didn't even know what it was and stolen you know, mostly by the older children who who wanted to get enough to eat so when you were young you, you hardly ate because it was um it was handed down kind of tom brown's school days time down these benches these long tables and by the time it got to the young children who were in the middle there wasn't much left or what there was had been kind of spat on or i mean it was really really um revolting, but also just unsafe. So I I talked to, as part of my research for for doing the book, I, I, I tracked down the headmaster who came in my last two years, and he was fascinating. He said he arrived at the school, and the first thing he realized was that every Saturday... There was a thing called the Sidcot School Speleological Society. So there was, these were was the, the cavers, and they had quite a lot of kit, and, and it was in the Mendips, so we were close to a lot of caves, the cheddar caves, etc., but actually much smaller ones as well, where people would just go caving for fun at the weekend, and, and they still do. But the school allowed the older children to go on their own without knowing anything about where they'd gone. And this guy, the headmaster, said he arrived in 1977, I suppose it it would have been, and and said, what's going on at the weekend? They said, well, the cavers just go off and, and they come back for tea. And he said, well, where? What's going on? How do I know where they are? And people looked at him as if he was mad. So we don't know, but they just go off. It's things like that, that I think, you know, can you imagine now at at any school saying, yes, we have a cave society, we don't really know where they go, but we hope they will come back for tea. It's just completely inconceivable. And, And yet that was the way that things ran. So, you know, again, I'm not particularly blaming the Quakers, although I do think, well, I kind of am a bit because I think it was weird that the Quakers who regarded themselves, quite rightly actually, as being progressive in so many ways, were so utterly unable to grasp that they ran a school that was a hellhole or didn't seem to care about it. But in the wider sense, I think they could probably come back to me and say, well, (laughs) we were all like that in the 70s. That was just what it was like.
1: Was it one of those things that when you had your own children, it brought into focus just how young you were and how vulnerable you were as well?
0: I mean, having your own children, it changed everything for me. I've got three children and... As I saw them growing up, you realize all the things that you don't have and all the things that were missing, trying to get onto a wall and seeing if you fell off or being pushed off by one of the others or all the kind of banging into each other kind of stuff. All I wanted to do was to please my mother and make sure she was okay. I mean, from a really, really early age. And there's none of the freedom involved in in my life. There's this sort of moment where you discover rugby And it kind of plays into
1: a bit of a journey about your own sense of masculinity, I suppose. Finding that physical joy,
0: that rough and tumble, perhaps, that you didn't have at home. I knew that there was something missing, something quite big missing. And I realised that part of it was the sort of physical side of just being a boy actually or maybe maybe being a child boy or girl but there's that kind of sense of, of freedom and just not worrying about stuff and one of the things that i can i can definitely remember the kind of the awe with which i approached it i used to go to to bath rugby bath was a very good amateur club they had a proper setup um this is back in the days when rugby was a rugby union was a was an amateur game but it was a big big sort of deal. And hundreds of people would turn up at the recreation ground in the middle of Bath. And there was this atmosphere of, you know, masculinity, actual violence. And and yet at the end of it, they were all able to drape their arms around each other, and kind of their blood would mingle, and the bandages, and the smell of the wintergreen cream, and all the rest of it. And I, I can remember a real kind of longing to be part of that, to want to be included in this kind of brotherhood of, of masculinity that I had no idea of at home because I lived with such a damaged man, a reduced person, my stepfather, and obviously my father was was a distant figure on the on the TV, and there were no other men around. And I I definitely had this desperation for that kind of um, release of being able to be masculine. But at the same time, and to be perfectly honest, I didn't think I ever achieved it because there was something separate about it. I found it rather frightening.
1: It sort of struck me that that experience you had is sort of what perhaps as a country or as a world we're going through in that. It's sort of an anxious masculinity because we talked so much about toxic masculinity, but not about the good sides or a sort of celebrated manhood. And I sort of wondered if there was really a quest for finding out what it really means to be a man that's not violent or, or, you know, again, with the rape story, but is... Able to rough and tumble in a consensual, happy space. So I suppose it's it sort of underpins that thing you're navigating there.
0: It does definitely goes to things that we've thought about more in modern society than we would have done in the in the 70s. But in some ways, I think in the 70s, you know, the joy of it was you didn't have to think about it too much. I mean, for all that was wrong with the 70s, and for all that, you know, we've talked about the treatment of women, the treatment of my mother, frankly, who was appalling. The the life chances available and and all of that stuff is true. But at the same time, there was some, there was a kind of freedom about being a man. I'm um, not that I shared in it. Uh, there was a freedom about being a man that I don't think there is now. It is masculinity is, is an odd thing, that kind of sense that you have that I always had, that being brought up by a woman and loved by a mother was incredibly important and completely made me who I am, but that there is also something lacking, there genuinely is something lacking without the influence of a male figure and that kind of ability to be at ease with men. And it's not that I don't have men friends or haven't in my life, but there is a sort of sense of something missing I think without that balance, when you're when you're young, and we can kind of pretend to ourselves that it's not the case and it doesn't matter, and you know, men and women's brains are pretty much the same and all the rest of it, which is all obviously true, and masculinity and femininity are social constructs, and I'm you know I'm sure that's that's true too, except that there are some real differences that come from the biological differences of male and female, and we've got very hooked. In the modern world, in discussion of masculinity and femininity and gender, we talk less about sex, biological sex, and the differences that there might be that spring from uh, different bodies and different ways of, of looking at the world that are linked to those bodies. And I think that's one of the, the interesting things.
1: We've talked a little bit there about, I mean, I suppose all the way through about how the 70s differ from today. And that's sort of part of it is a portrait of this particular time. And I want to go into some of the Harsher things you you mentioned that really stick out. Boarding school you've given is one example, but you also sort of tell stories about Blue Peter teaching children how to use newspaper to keep older people warm, and your mother had a had a, had a partner who sort of dropped dead in a train station. All these things that would be such traumatic, major things, but are just sort of part of the texture of the seventies. I wonder what how you reflect on it as a whole, and you know the nostalgia for the seventies, but also maybe some shock as well.
0: The, the 70s are interesting because there's been a kind of revisionist view of the 70s. Um, uh, some historians now, and particularly Labour-supporting historians, Andy Beckett, who writes for The Guardian, I think, and wrote a brilliant book about the 70s in which he sort of the suggestion is that actually there are some things about the 70s that, that we shouldn't be so dismissive of, and particularly the kind of sense of collective us, um, whether it was because you were a member of a big organisation, a union, a church. Um, you know, we'd, we, we were still the era where you could be a kind of mass movement, a football crowd standing together in the stands that kind of sense of of the us that there was in the 70s um, is is interesting I'm not sure necessarily I'd want to go back to it but it, it is interesting that it made us psychologically I think feel different to how we how we feel now much less atomized much more part of of things even if we felt that we were part of an oppressed thing we were still part of it, that was absolutely part of the 70s. But also the dinginess of it. So I, you know, I describe in the book wrapping my granny in newspaper to keep her warm uh, during the, the the first miners' strike in the in the early 70s because we were having power cuts and things. And mum and I saw on blue Peter this thing about how to how to wrap your granny up. It's like a dystopian novel. I couldn't believe that was, it was real. And there were all sorts of other aspects of life we think of now as being the kind of end times of political disaster and everything going crazy and, and all the rest of it. But actually, the 70s were genuinely, I mean, we, there was talk of a coup um, in the early 70s. There was a real possibility, sense that the entire nation would collapse that all of our in- industries would collapse that inflation would become hyperinflation and the whole economy would would fall apart and that in those circumstances maybe the army ought to take over or you know or I mean there, there was this real kind of sense of profound collapse alongside of course the IRA's bombing campaign which was really getting going I think we forget how distressed we think of ourselves as being kind of end times of distress but actually it was it was significantly worse and that was the backdrop for all that was happening to me and it was the backdrop for what was happening in the country and it is interesting to look back on it and see all the things that were awful about it but also actually there is this kind of sense of nostalgia for some aspects on it of it and i think i think the aspects that we do look back on and wonder about whether they were better is is that kind of collective thing we were all part of it together
1: When you were listing those things off, it's hard not to think that the COVID generation and the post-war generation might have a lot in common. Did that feel like it was timely to write this book now for that
0: reason? I didn't really consciously think that, but I think it's a good thing always to look back and to realize that even in quite recent history, things were in some respects worse, in some respects probably better, but in some respects worse. You know, we have just been through something pretty awful. And I think in a way, actually, I mean, although a lot of, of older people have died and there's a lot of sadness attached to that plainly but actually what's happened to young people what we've done to our school children and and students at university and all the rest of it we don't yet know in the next few years that we're going to discover the amount of damage that's been done and I think it is useful then to look back and say well yeah there will be damage but there's also there was damage in previous generations caused by other things we cope we do get through these things.
1: Now, I want to turn to uh, where we sort of end up in the book. Uh, we talk about your time in school and then you eventually get onto the BBC trainee scheme and you describe this very jubilant moment where you're sort of set on your path as a broadcaster. It feels like the the book ends and it, it gives us all that backdrop to the Justin we know now. How did you feel reflecting on that particular moment and I guess getting into broadcasting and why did you choose to end it there?
0: I chose to end it there because I think that is a sort of natural place in which to stop and I don't want to write about my later life. I don't think anyone would be the slightest bit interested. It's kind of, it's more normal and and, uh, and better kept uh, out, out of the spotlight.
1: Both Charles, your stepfather and your mother have, have passed away And I was struck by your openness writing about them, and I wondered what it was like writing about people who were not around to speak to, but you were able to speak to those who knew them, and whether our actual perception of even talking about death has also changed. You talk about how when your grandmother passed, it was all behind closed doors, and this is a very frank book.
0: We, we didn't talk about death at all and we do slightly more now though i don't think we're still very good at it yeah i mean i didn't go to my grandmother's funeral which is extraordinary really she was i was of all the very few people in the world i was close to i was close to her she lived quite near us in in the city of bath and um it, it just seems extraordinary to me that i wasn't there i was i was at boarding school at the time and the, no effort was made i was only an hour away no effort was made to, to pick me up or, or do anything about it that the day wasn't marked at all and i i think those sorts of things are strange and damaging and i think in a way we have moved away from from that um but, but writing about people who are dead is interesting because you are in a sense having a conversation with them and I, I i very much feel with my mother that i mean she'd be amused by the book but slightly horrified by bits of it i think but i don't i i feel yeah i feel it is in a sense it is part of a continuing conversation with with her. And with my stepfather, who I didn't really know, and I, I don't think we treated particularly well, actually, neither my mother nor nor I. I mean, he, he didn't really do us any particular harm. It's a pity not to have been more able to be to have a conversation with him. And in a sense, a book is an effort to, to write that more widely, though, of course, you have a freedom to, to write anything you like about people who are dead. So I did wait. I, I, didn't, um, well, I didn't reveal to anyone that my, my father was Peter Woods until he had gone and, and his... His um, his first wife as well, uh, and my mother, because none of those people would have enjoyed the idea of it being written about. And and I, I think there are things. I think there are kind of rules, as it were, that prevent you from causing harm by writing these things, even if it's good for you. Uh, and I wouldn't have wanted to. And I, I, you know, my mother. I think she'd appreciate the book. She loved everything that I did, but I, I don't think she would have enjoyed the kind of spotlight being put on her, her early life, actually, which I think she felt embarrassed by and, and ashamed of, actually, because that's another thing, that we had genuine shame. People, we had kind of normative behaviours and stuff that we don't now have to this same extent. In fact, we're very keen never to, to, to always to say in society that nobody should ever be ashamed of anything. Uh, my mother was ashamed of her early life, genuinely so. And that, that was, particularly for women, that was a thing
1: and was there anything that surprised you about it when you did put it all together as we you know we talked about all these themes that come through but obviously when it's your own life you don't think of it as a thematic piece of narration so was there something that came out for you surprised by
0: i think the thing that really surprised me as i went through it was how much i felt more critical of my mother actually than i did so i grew up to not only adore her and be close to her, but also to believe that she had done everything she could in her power to make everything okay. And that had been the driving force of her life. Not that she ever sort of said that in those terms, but that was the sense that I had from every interaction that I ever had with her. And actually, when I wrote the book, I did think, I mean, not not in a kind of critical way, but it, I just, as an observer, as as an outside observer of the two of us, I did think actually you made some quite catastrophic errors along the way. I shouldn't have gone to boarding school. I should have, there should have been more effort made to make my life more normal. That a a, no, a more normal woman, a less damaged woman, would have managed. A, a lot of the kind of political stuff in the early seventies was was just weird, and. I I don't think necessarily um, uh, got her anywhere. So I think there are all sorts of, I think, you know, if if there is something that I kind of take away from writing it, it actually does not damage, but change your relationship with the person that you thought you had. And that it can be a a bit of a disturbing thing that, but, you know, I'm old enough. I'm in my sixties now. So I kind of, I'm beyond being disturbed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it strikes me saying that, though, that we live in a world that often when you criticise people, it means shutting them off and that actually it's quite an achievement to be able to say she got things wrong, she had a great sense of humour, this could have been different, but we had I loved her to bits.
0: Yeah, I hope so. That's exactly right, Poppy. I think that's exactly, put your finger on it, that the whole thing is just this great whirling complexity of human relationships and we should be able to talk about them in the round and be... Um, and be open about them. And I think it's, it's beneficial, both psychologically, but actually also, in a sense, almost sort of politically. We are just too quick to judge each other put each other in boxes, you're this, you're that. And whenever this, whenever that, whenever quite all this or quite all that, whether it's masculine and feminine or right or left or good or bad or whatever, this extraordinary mix of stuff. And I've always been fascinated by the, in fact, since university, since the, it was first introduced to me in, in, in a tiny room in the LSE by um, by a, a professor there, this idea that actually, do we really have free will if every event has a prior cause, which is true in the physical world, isn't it? When you think about it, everything is caused by something. If that is also the case inside our brains, from the entire universe through to each sort of fizzing neuron in our brain, then how is it possible that we also have free will? Where does that come from? Where are we if we're not rooted in the physical world? And it's it's not it's not psychological. It's philosophical, actually. It's, to what extent are we any of us to blame for the things that we do? My mum, my stepfather, um, and we make a distinction between people who are mentally ill and not mentally ill. Should we? Are we all just trapped in things that are inevitably going to happen? And again, you know, as I, if I could write a novel, I, I would have written this as a as a novel exploring that. But um, this is the best I can I can do.
1: Thank you, Justin. That was Justin Webb, author of The Gift of a Radio. The book is out now from Penguin. You've been listening to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Poppy Damon, and thank you for listening.